Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance, the show for busy, fulfilled professionals like you to learn how to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Now, here is your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. Hello, enlightened investors. So glad to be back with you again today. And we are going to have a wonderful conversation with Jesse Fragile, who is a commercial real estate broker for Aviso Young and a real estate investor himself. He started investing in student rental properties a little over 10 years ago. As his passion for investing grew, he began investing in single-family homes and condos. Following this up, he transitioned to investing in multifamily apartments, and that is his focus today. And Jesse is also the host of Working Capital, the real estate podcast. Jesse, take us into the show and share an experience that helped you to be who you are today. Hey, Alan. Thanks, first of all, for having me on. I appreciate it. Okay, so a formidable experience that made me who I am today. Probably how I got into commercial real estate was something that it developed a little later after I was investing in real estate. So for my background, I started investing pretty young, 19, 20 years old, when I started investing in single family or student student rental properties where I went to school. And I had worked for probably four or five years after university in kind of the energy sector, finance, in the energy industry, but in a financial role. And it was kind of, it wasn't until my at the time, my next door neighbor or my my dad's next door neighbor, because I was still uh, still surfing uh, my childhood bed. He basically he was an investment banker uh, for one of the, the major banks here, and he knew that I invested in real estate and had basically kind of said to me, "You, you obviously enjoy this this stuff." And he's like, "What are you doing, kind of in the current role that you're at? Why don't you pursue commercial real estate as a broker?" And it's funny. It's I, I wouldn't say it never came. To mine, but it wasn't something. It wasn't a career path that I had thought of doing. I thought that whatever you know, day job that I had would be separate from real estate investing. Similar to probably some of your listeners who are you know working professionals, doctors, lawyers, uh, accountants. You know, I thought the investing would just be a separate aspect. But he was right. It, it was something that I was passionate about. And I mean, you could make the argument that it's it's risky to kind of have all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. You know, and that's why some of the people in my industry do try to diversify uh, with their investments. But I think ultimately, I, I'm happy he kind of gave me that advice. And it was, you know, this was something where it was probably one, two in the morning. He was coming home from from a bar close to. <laughs> Close to our house, and you know, I was probably up to no good at that time. And the reason it was formidable is just was so it was so out of character for him because he was a suit and tie kind of guy that you didn't really. I mean, you saw pretty much in the day, and I think at that time it was something that stuck with me. And what ended up happening was he connected me with the head of real estate investment banking at the firm that he was at, and I had met that that gentleman, and it was kind of from from then on I, I started looking to actually get into brokerage. As well as invest in uh, in real estate, so yeah, that's the one that comes to mind. I guess obviously you you enjoy uh, the brokerage as well as the investment aspect, but going from the energy industry and the financial role that you were in to to brokerage had to be a 
fairly big step and leap. How was that transition process? And and really, what what drew you to brokerage? So the transition process, you're right. It was it you move, moving from any nine to five job to brokerage is is can be a pretty drastic step. I mean, sales in general, but brokerage especially because most commercial shops at the end of the day eat what you kill. So if you're not in a sales role already, you're you're kind of it's a little bit of a, a not a culture shock. It's a professional shock to basically have a hundred percent, you know, your hundred percent commission. So that aspect was definitely something that took some getting used to, but ultimately it was the right transition. You know, once you start realizing that you can produce income, you can uh, start, you know, engaging uh, and networking with clients and building kind of building your book of business. So that aspect, it was, yeah, it was, it was okay doing that transition. And I guess what, what made it a little bit easier is the fact that since I was already speaking the language of real estate on the investment side, even though real estate, as you and your listeners know, is it's not just one thing. There's, there's you know, retail, industrial, there's a whole slew of different areas that you can go into. At least the language is relatively similar. And I always tell younger guys at our firm, like, you know, it takes a year or two years to learn the the kind of the language, the nomenclature of, of real estate, the acronym SOUP. And that really is half the battle because, you know, once somebody sees that you're competent and you kind of can, you know what you're talking about, you can gain that trust a little bit more easily. So, yeah, I would say that was um, that was probably what the what the transition was like. So you made that transition from W-2 to a total commission. I'm sure there had to be ups and downs during uh, certainly that probably the first two years, maybe even more than that. What was the, the most difficult part of that transition? When we talk with younger individuals coming into our industry, or not even younger, just transitioning from a W-2 income to a commission base, we usually say five years is really what you have to commit before you know you, you say that it's not for me. We see a lot of people come in and two, three years and they leave and you, you really have to put in five years. But the first two years are definitely the, the most challenging. Uh, and that's really, I mean, it, it's just the fact that you're, you're coming in cold, right? You're, you're building your book of business from scratch. So I would actually argue that the second year is probably more challenging than the first because I don't know for all firms, but most firms, at least here, uh, you know, JLL, Cushman, CBRE, there's typically a year that you have with a principal in our case, because we're a private company or a senior individual. So that first year is really an an associate year that you're learning a lot. Uh, That second year, usually if everything goes right, you know, you're cut loose and you're, you're starting to earn income on your own. So that second year is really the challenging piece. So I would say that second year is definitely the hardest. That's where you're really, you know, taking the training wheels off and trying to build your own business on your own. So obviously in, in conjunction with a team in certain situations, but really that's where you start seeing if you, if you're going to sink or swim. So I'd say that that would probably be the, the most challenging aspect was that second year and going out on your own. And what exactly was the most challenging aspect of that? I mean, it's just the the uncertainty. I think you're coming off of any income job, you know exactly when you're going to get paid. And yes, the you know commission based industry, there's no ceiling, you know, especially in our industry. But yeah, the uncertainty that's that's definitely the aspect that's probably the the was the most challenging. And then you know you start realizing that it's kind of the uh, comp competence confidence cycle or or wheel i don't know if you've seen that but 
you build confidence in a domain and you get more confident. And then when you get more confident, you build more confidence. And it's kind of, you know, you got to get down that that path. And then once you're kind of hitting your stride, the uncertainty kind of goes away. You, you start realizing there's a, a rough formula for success in this in this industry. Well, what do you find most rewarding about uh, brokerage? So, I mean, definitely the clients and the, you know, it's the investing side, like I would just kind of put them side by side. The investing side is great because when you, for me at least, when you have major acquisitions, you know, you complete a deal that's obviously, you know, the, you know, winning the championship or, you know, for, for the sports analogy with brokerage, I think that stuff is certainly great when you sign a, you know, big lease or you, you sell a property. But I think the, the best aspect, in my opinion, of brokerage is that you're dealing with so many different companies. And that's what I find that's interesting because it's not something you're, you're likely to experience in the same way in investing. You know, my clients can be anywhere from technology startups to, you know, insurance companies, lawyers, uh, people that are making software for some niche industry. And, you know, there's, you're starting to see over time how businesses in different verticals operate. And you can't help but learn from that because if you're only in one industry, whether it's energy, finance, accounting, real estate, you kind of see how things are done in your space where a lot of what is helpful. And I think this is kind of the where the incubator and startup model is beneficial, where you can see various different types of companies and maybe take the best of, of those industries and try to incorporate that in your business. Well, you had uh, started investing actually as, as a college student, and I guess continued that uh, even when you got into your professional role. What was it about brokerage that actually from that midnight conversation, was it the fact that you had had some experience in real estate investing that interested you in brokerage and you thought that that could be a bridge to your own investment career? Or was it the fact that there really is no ceiling in terms of of what you can make as a broker? Yeah, that's a good question. I think what was impactful about that conversation was that my I think what my neighbor was getting at was he he kind of understood the the type of job or the type of like my personality in general. And I think what he saw was that there you know that aspect of you being able to earn what you can based on your merit. So if you, you know, if you work really hard and obviously, you know, you have to have luck in there as well, but you can pretty much dictate what you make. And I think another aspect of it was the fact that, you know, he saw the current role that I was in, I chatted with him in the past. And I think he, he knew that this wasn't going to be a long-term thing for me. It was, it was like, I, I say at the time, you know, 23 or 24, whatever it was, it was good job, good money, uh, all things considered. But it wasn't something I was going to be fulfilled with over the long term. And that's where kind of where brokerage came in was this other aspect of not really having your own boss. Like, yes, brokerages have their broker of record or their managing director, depending on you know what structure you have. But at the end of the day, our boss is our clients. And I kind of I always joke where, you know, with individuals if they're thinking about getting in sales, you know, I like the idea that I'm getting paid by the person that I'm providing the service to directly. So, it, you know, the client is paying my, you know, me directly. You know, obviously there's an intermediary through the brokerage, but I'm satisfying them. So, my clients are my boss, and that relationship to me works a lot better than having a middle manager, good or bad, you know, who's the one that's 
you're kind of taking direction from. Whereas I rather see, you know, the the person that literally my service is going out to. You know, like if you're contracting, you know, you're doing you're doing work for a client, you're you're seeing the person and you know, there's that just I think there's a purity of that type of relationship. Uh whereas you know, in, in more complex organizations or, or more hierarchical organizations, you don't get that. And that is so true in, in most corporate situations or hierarchical situations. The rewards are very different and they, they aren't as immediate and as uh, direct, particularly from the clientele that you are generally serving. Well, you started out with uh, student rentals while you were a student. And you progressed to then investing in single-family homes and condos. What was the compelling reason that you transitioned uh, from the student market to, I guess, general single-family? Yeah, so there was kind of a, at least as it stands today, it was kind of three, I look at it three phases. I started in student rental properties. That was really a function of the fact that I was in school and I was that, that w- that's what I was exposed to. So the first property I bought was a student rental property. And then from there, you know, like, like progression in any area of real estate, you, you know, you typically start in one domain, you kind of, you add to that domain typically. Uh, and I, I understand that there's with our industry, there's no typical, but I started adding student re- rental properties. And then once I moved back home, you know, where I went to school is probably an hour and a half drive uh, from you know, from where I call home. So for me, it was the fact that I had managed these properties, these student rental properties for a couple of years out, outside of school after graduating. And it just became a little bit more challenging because at that time it was just myself and, and property management in those areas. So that's when I started to look at the, the market. Uh, and this was kind of, I would say 2010, 2011, there was there was a lot of good buying opportunities in Toronto where I'm from. So, you know, and, and then from there to now, there's, you know, quite, quite a bit capital appreciation. Uh, so for me, it, we, we started or I started buying condos in Toronto. Some of them I sold at, on assignment or uh, wholesaling uh, and I use them inter- interchangeably. And so from there, went from student rentals, bought condos. I consider the student rentals single family, even though they have license for for different like boarding size. And then from there, it was kind of a pivot to look at once I, at, you know, coincidentally, I found the partner that I work with today through brokerage and he works in my brokerage. He does something different than I do. But that's when we kind of made the transition to selling uh, or it made the transition to buying multifamily apartments. And part of that leaving student rentals uh, where I went to school, selling them kind of to kind of create a bit of a war chest for the next move, buying a few properties and selling in Toronto. And then from there, I was in a position that we partnered and and then bought the first uh, multifamily property in 2016, 2017. So I'm supposing you were brokering apartment and multifamily deals as a broker prior to your actually going into it yourself. Is that correct? Or? So no, it's funny that you asked it. That's the distinction with my partner, John. He's an apartment broker. So that's what he does. He, he does uh, buys and sells apartment buildings. Whereas myself, I work in office leasing and sales predominantly. So for me, that's where the reason I meet so many different companies is because I'm dealing with larger companies that are and smaller companies that are looking for space, uh, whether it's in kind of the downtown area, but we kind of service I think 87 offices. We service the globe, but 
that was one aspect I think that was helpful too, because I was in slightly different, a slightly different vertical than what I invest in. So it was, yeah, something that, you know, we, we had looked at uh, some apartments, we talked about potentially buying something and then that, you know, it was kind of a perfect storm where we, we had an opportunity and, and kind of went together on it. Well, did you, did you intentionally make this transition or was it something that kind of just came along and it, there was an opportunity there and you seized the opportunity? So it was definitely my goal to move to larger properties. Uh, and it seemed like a logical transition from single family, even though, you know, I work in a, with a lot of, uh, a lot of brokers that are in industrial and office, those are fairly capital intensive for the most part. And they're a bit more challenging unless you're unless, especially office, unless you're talking institutional capital or you're raising quite a bit of capital and then looked in industrial industrial is extremely and still is extremely tight in terms of the market. And then there's the other risk of, you know, when you have vacancies in an apartment, that might be one of 50 people. When you have vacancies in industrial, you know, that be, might be 50% of your income. So we wanted to get into commercial. And we thought multi-residential was, was kind of the, the best route. You have invested in, in both Canadian markets and uh, USA markets. In a lot of ways, I think there's a lot of similarity between the two countries in terms of real estate markets and in terms of regulations and legalities. But what are some of the, the main differences between Canadian rules and regulations as opposed to USA? Yeah, so I guess the easiest one that people in the States are, are always a little surprised about is there's no equivalent to the 1031 exchange. So it doesn't exist in Canada, which is, you know, for those that don't know, it's the idea of being able to purchase an asset, selling the asset. And if you sell within a certain time frame, you can not have to pay taxes on your gain. And you can, as long as you sell within for a certain time frame, find a new property and it has to be a like and kind asset. So, you know, you're buying in Canada when you sell, you pay taxes. Like, there's just the bottom line. So, exactly. that's why I think we have a bit more of a culture of a buy and hold uh, culture. You know, that's just my opinion. I think that's part of the reason. Whereas I find that in the States, there's a lot more velocity. Now, 1031 exchanges, as I'm sure you know, and listeners know, it's not a slam dunk, right? It's, it's not easy to just to make, you know, make the stars align that you're going to sell and then find the other one. But that's one thing. Uh, we don't have that. I think another big one that a lot of Canadians make the mistake of is they go down into the States, they see a late night television or a late night uh, infomercial and they, they buy a property and they use an LLC as the structure. And Canada doesn't recognize limited liability companies. So what ends up happening is you, you create an LLC in the States and then the Canadian, the CRA, Canada Revenue, they look at that as a corporation. And that's not a good thing for investors because then we're getting taxed twice. We're getting taxed in the States and taxed in Canada. So the way we deal with um, you know, the LLC, a lot of people are like, well, what would the, the equivalent be? And if it's about structuring where you have kind of a managing member and, and uh, investors, uh, we typically will use a limited partnership. Uh, so that's something that we, would, that we would do for that. So yeah, two that come to mind. But like you said, the one nice thing with Canadian and US investments is that the tax treaties that we have between the Canadian and American government, they're so, they're so mature and developed that a lot of a lot of complications are streamlined based on you know the elections that you can make and the credits that you get. So you know both 
seems like the IRS and the CRA, you know, they're somewhat buddy buddy. So you know, there a lot of the issues you might have overseas or in different countries, you don't have between the states and uh, and Canada. Well, from my understanding, limited partnerships in Canada work pretty much like LLCs work here in the USA. Is that is that correct? Or? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, exactly like you, you know. It, the managing member is, is the general partner, the limited, you know, the, the members are investor member uh, level, you know, that's, that's the limited partners, but yeah, you're right. That's pretty much how it's all. It's pretty much our version of the LLC, especially if you're, if you're doing a syndication model. Yeah. I mean, of course, in the United States, we have the option of using one or the other and most people do use the LLC, but we also see limited partnerships uh, as well. You had mentioned that buying opportunities were good in 2010, and well, they certainly were here in the United States, really, up until about 2014-15, when uh, finally we started recovering from 2008. Canada, I think, was also hit pretty hard in 2008, but tell us about that uh, that time hmm. period. Was it as bad in Canada as it was in the USA? So, I, you know... I think historically we have a pretty conservative banking system in Canada and I played armchair economist. So, you know, try to be kind of try to educate myself on the history of, of what's what's happened in the States and Canada from the real estate point of view, the early nineties, uh, you know, the commercial real estate crashes in both, in both countries, uh, you know, interest rates in the seventies. So I try to kind of keep up on that in terms of 07, 08, 09, I think you're right to say that it's not, you know, Canadi- Canadians and, and Canada did feel uh, the impact of uh, the, you know, financial re- recession. I don't think at the extreme amount that certain areas in the States. And I think part of the, the aspect was in the States, you know, you had a, a, a credit market almost completely dry up where, you know, normal operating companies were having trouble getting credit. And there was definitely kind of an aspect of that happening in Canada as well. But I think that our conservative history and nature of our banking, I think, is what kind of helped that. And the other piece, too, is I, I don't think, you know, I think this was also part of the reason that the Great Depression didn't, Canada wasn't hit as hard. We have four or five major banks that have a branching system. So, you know, when one, when one branch is hurt, the whole, there's not the systemic risk that there is in the states where you could have, you know, a state. Uh, you know, bank or like a major bank in an area. And if that, you know, if that bank is wiped out, you know, that's that individual bank. So I think that is a, is an aspect of it. But there was certainly the, from a real estate point of view, I think there is a similar effect. There were uh, prices that were completely um, out of whack in 06 or, you know, whatever you want to call it, frothy. And I think there, there was that correction and again, like you said, there were buying opportunities in most of the major markets, you know, and even the tertiary markets. But I'm thinking Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, you know, there was a lot of good buying opportunities. And I think lastly, the other thing that kind of helped us through it was we didn't have the, the same type of, I guess you would say, latitude with a lot of our mortgages, you know, no doc loans, ninja loans, like being able to get approved for something with, without putting, you know, a, a T4 or W2 and showing income was just not something that was part of our banking. Like we, we had fairly stringent requirements and still do, you know, some would say there's a little, little too onerous today, but that was definitely an aspect. So that scene where, you know, you have the movie, the big short, you know, that aspect of people buying five, six, seven places and, and doing it without verification of income. I think that, you know, 
it's Hollywood to begin with, but I think that was definitely more of a fiction in Canada. Um, we didn't see that type, you know, there was, a, there were aspects of that, but I don't think to the extreme as some American markets. Well, that's interesting correlation there. So Jesse, you've got a lot to offer. Tell our viewers and listeners how they can get uh, in touch with you. Yeah, sure. You can go to workingcapitalpodcast.com or if you, you know, listen on Spotify, iTunes, Working Capital, the real estate podcast. Uh, you can also go to YouTube, Jesse Fragali, F-R-A-G-A-L-E, and same name uh, for Instagram. If anybody has any questions, um, happy to answer them, uh, direct message on Instagram. Well, Jesse, uh, it's been a delight having you. Enlightened investors, glad you were with us today. Look forward to being with you next time. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks, Al. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steve Talker Capital, a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steve Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steve Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at stevetalker.com.